In a world of career uncertainty, there is one variable you have total control over, yourself. Welcome to Forever Employable Stories, where expert digital transformation consultant and successful entrepreneur Jeff Gotthelf will share conversations with unique and inspiring individuals who have taken charge of their professional lives, leveraged their expertise, built an audience, and future-proofed their careers so you can learn how to do the same. Here's your host, Jeff Gotthelf. Just ask her what you want. It sounds simple and straightforward, and yet so few of us actually do it. It's something I've had to practice doing. Shushing the voice in my head, you're just going to bother that already busy person, leave them alone. Well, it turns out, just asking pays off. That's how I met Lindsay Pollock. After coming across her profile on LinkedIn, I just asked to speak with her. We met, and it turns out we had a ton in common, not the least of which is that her father and I went to the same high school. Not at the same time, obviously. Lindsay is a writer author, speaker, and trainer on all things related to hiring diverse, multi-generational workplaces, maintaining sustainable careers from graduation through retirement, and teaching both job seekers as well as employers how to nurture the kind of cultures that develop the kind of diversity modern businesses need to succeed. I was lucky enough to spend 30 minutes speaking with Lindsay as she's getting ready to launch her fourth book, Recalculating, Navigate Your Career Through the Changing World of Work, which is a how-to guide for a post-COVID workplace. In our chat, Lindsay covers how she got started writing and why it worked for her as a way to exit the mainstream career track and build her own brand and business. She shares the struggles and ups and downs of becoming a writer, even with some pretty good connections, and how being present in the conversation and equally as important, staying relevant to the current conversation keeps her forever employable. Take a listen now. Hey, folks, welcome back. We're going to do another fantastic Forever Employable Stories. This time, my guest is author of four books and multi-generational work expert, Lindsay Pollack. I'm super excited to speak with her today. Lindsay, thanks so much for coming and telling us your Forever Employable story. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Amazing. And so you and I have spoken before. Obviously, we prepped for this interview as well, but we've spoken before in the past. And as we were sort of, you're from the New York metro area. I'm from the New York metro area as well. And as we're kind of going back and forth a little bit, found out a really interesting fact that we have in common, which is that your dad went to the same high school that I did, which is- Fairlawn High. Yeah, there you go. Fairlawn, New Jersey. Obviously not at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) He's a little older. A little bit, a little bit, which is good. That was a small world, which is pretty cool. And a ton of fun, which is great. So before we kind of dive into things a little bit, Tell folks a little bit about yourself, sort of the TLDR of who you are. Sure. I love it. First, I wanted to say how you and I connected, because I think it's such an example of everything that both of us preach and practice, which Mm -hmm. is that I'd heard of your book because the title is amazing. And then you reached out to me on LinkedIn, and it was sort of this serendipitous moment of, oh, I've heard of you. And then you reached out, and we didn't know each other. But you sent a nice email, I looked up your stuff, and now here we are. So I just think it's such a great example of you never know if you reach out to somebody where it can lead. So I wanted to kind of mention that to start. So to tell my TLDR story, I did not mean to do any of this. There was no plan in place. As you said, my dad was a Fairlawn High graduate. He was an English teacher. So I grew up with an English teacher dad. I loved reading and books and writing. I went to Yale undergrad, which I was really proud to do. But I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do with it. I was really good at being a student. So normally when that's what you are, everybody immediately says, well, you should go to law school, right? That's sort of what what people do, including my dad. 
And so that was kind of the loose plan. And then I ended up getting a scholarship to go to Australia on a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship for grad school. And one of the requirements of this scholarship was that you had to give speeches at local Rotary clubs. And so I had to just talk about, hey, thank you so much for sponsoring, you know, my master's degree. My mom had her own business when I was a kid. So I ended up getting a master's degree in women's studies. And I studied women's entrepreneurship because I figured, well, that's interesting and it's kind of unique. And I knew that Rotary was very supportive of women in business. And so I had this funny combination of doing this degree, studying and interviewing women who had their own businesses and then giving speeches about it. I didn't think too much of it, but I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. But I absolutely loved the speaking. And when I came back to the US two and a half years later in 1999, I had to like report back to the Rotary Scholarship Committee. And they said, you know, Ms. Pollock, did you do your required speeches to local Rotary clubs? And I said, well, oh, I don't know how many were required. (laughs) And they said four. And I said, I did 39. So I realized like, wait a minute, something like that was sort of like an aha moment. And then it was right at the time of the burgeoning internet. You write about this in your book so well. You you like had to do it. I mean, that you just had to work in the internet in those days. And I was almost past. It was the gold rush. So I went to San Francisco. Funny story. I was at a sushi restaurant with a friend talking about how I needed a job. And someone at the next table said, I work for a com. We're hiring. Do you want to come in and interview? Like, that's how easy it was in San Francisco to get a job on the internet. I wanted to be in, in New York. I'm an East Coaster. And I ended up finding this perfect synergy at a magazine called Working Woman, which had just launched a website. So it was like my entrepreneurial women's stuff, the web. It was my dream job. And I kid you not, I would still be there if it still existed. I loved the mission. I loved the job. I loved being in the internet. I mean, I was director of business development, which meant nothing. You know, it was sort of like do whatever needs to be done. And I wrote that out for about a year and a half until the company went bankrupt. And I was devastated. It was the dot-com bust. It was right before 9-11. So I was laid off. I had some severance money. But the CEO of the company, who was a man named Jay McDonald, gave me my Sony Vio purple laptop. And he said, Lindsay, I think you should start your own business. I kid you not. And of course, like all good advice, I totally ignored it. I was like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Thanks to the laptop. But I had no choice because it was 9-11. There were no jobs in New York. It was so terrifying. And I started freelance writing because at the time you could still make you know, some money freelance writing. And I would get like little gigs, writing a newsletter for somebody, editing something. You know, I just kind of like pieced together enough to pay my rent. I fully admit I was privileged enough that my parents helped me out. And I just kind of cobbled this thing together while I was job hunting. And I just kind of never found a job and I just kind of kept freelancing. And the X factor was this rotary connection is they kept asking me to come and speak and talk about what I was doing. And I was good at it. And they would say, hey, we heard you're good. Can you come speak here? And I was paid, I think, $250 to speak at a chamber of commerce in Trumbull, Connecticut. And that was my first paid speech. I didn't know that that was a thing. So like there was the writing and the speaking And, you know, eventually I needed health insurance and all that stuff. So I got a part-time job at Working Mother magazine, which, you know, had been kind of a a partner of Working Woman. But I was sort of knowledgeable enough at the time. And I I don't know why I did this, but I said, can I work part-time? Miraculously, they let me work part-time. And I was writing and speaking on the side. And I truly, I didn't have an idea of where it was going to go, but I knew career stuff and women's stuff. And the sort of like defining moment was I started working on a book and I had no idea where it was going to go. 
but I started writing about how I didn't know what I wanted to do. And the nepotism piece is that my aunt is a literary agent (laughs) and I got a book deal. And I wrote a book called Getting from College to Career. And I also sort of stumbled upon the college speaking market, which is, you know, career services centers in colleges. We're always looking for people to come in and give talks. And I really enjoyed the speaking. And slowly but surely, I built this reputation just in the New York area, local community colleges and stuff, speaking about how to get a job in the new digital economy. And, you know, you mentioned a multi-generational work expert. That was not part of it. It was just kind of you know, helping people get jobs. And when the book came out in 2007, I sort of landed a little bit on the map, but entirely in the campus market. So I had started my business in 2002. And in 2007, I got the book deal. I was still freelancing and and writing and, you know, all that kind of stuff and working part-time for health insurance. And what really changed everything was in 2008, when Barack Obama started running for president the word millennial sort of exploded onto the scene. And I changed my branding from college to career expert to millennial career expert. And I kid you not, overnight, the phone started ringing. That word became so hot. And I was really well positioned in the campus market. In 2008, PricewaterhouseCoopers called me out of the blue, a cold call and said, we hear that you teach college students how to get jobs. Could you teach us how to hire college students? And that sort of raised me into the corporate sector that led to a six-year role with LinkedIn as their campus ambassador and to my corporate speaking career. So it was a fluke, the word millennial. I rode that fluke for about 10 years, wrote two more books. And around 2018, I'm a Gen Xer, um, I'm 46 years old. And a lot of people always said to me, like, what about everybody else? You know, you talk about college to career, you talk about millennials, but millennials are getting older. You're not such a spring chicken anymore. You know, what about everybody else? And I really saw the writing on the wall. And again, I switched my website and switched my branding to multi-generational career expert. I wrote that third book, The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace and really pivoted. So I think part of my story of Forever Employable is sort of following my interests and my skill set, but really watching what was going on in the market, which was that this millennial idea was sort of on the decline as Gen Z was coming up and, and so forth. And what's happened recently with the pandemic is, you know, not a lot of companies were focusing on multi-generational teams when there was a pandemic going on. So I sort of pulled out the stuff I had on remote work and the stuff that I had on, you know, dealing with mental health in the workplace. And now I've written my fourth book, Recalculating, which is about how do you manage your career through these difficult times. So I think the core has always been career development, personal development, success, leadership, but I've been able to pivot to watch what's going on in the market and take that really big idea of career and just kind of mold it to what I see happening. And so, you know, I never planned it in advance, but looking back, I think that's what really makes the story come together. It's really fascinating. And I think it's really interesting and it kind of hits home on a lot of different points. I've got a ton of follow-up questions, but I think it's really worth pointing out that this sort of continuous reinvention that you've maintained throughout your career by paying attention to what's happening in the world. I think a lot of folks miss that. And it's one of the things that I talk about a lot with folks these days. You know, they'll say, well, I do this thing, right? And if this thing that I do is no longer relevant, I'm screwed. I'm out of a job. 
well, okay, well, that's your job title and that's your job description. But realistically, kind of what's the underlying thing and then how could you reinvent it for the current context, right? So in your case, it's the generations that you were dealing with and multi-generations right now, it's pandemic related. And for other folks, really, it's thinking through, well, okay, right, whatever's changing in my world, in my industry, in my domain, how do I reposition, continuously reposition myself so that I'm relevant? And it's clearly worked out for you, which is amazing. And sometimes, this is fascinating, I think folks underestimate this. Sometimes, I'm not trying to take away any credit from your success here at all, right? But it's as simple as a rebrand, right? Or a repositioning, mm-hmm. right? Maybe the material is roughly more or less the same, but you're repositioning it for the current context with different words. And mm-hmm. that all of a sudden triggers the kind of inbound leads that you're looking for. I mean, I even remember changing from Gen Y was sort of the accepted terminology for a while and then kind of quickly millennial overtook it and I had to change stuff. I mean, you have to really pay attention to those things. I see it in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. There's a lot of change to the language there and you have to keep up with those things to show that you're really knowledgeable about your field. It's true in any industry. I mean, the pace of change that we're seeing today is super fast. And it's one of the things that keeps folks relevant. I mean, it's easy to be comfortable and say, look, I'm just going to kind of do this thing. I'm going to ride this out as long as it goes. And I get that. I get that the desire for that consistency and that safety. But if a pandemic strikes or there's a layoff or there's a merger or an acquisition or the dot-com bubble bursts or whatever it is, right? how are you going to position yourself? One of the things that, that folks say, and I get this question all the time, they'll say, that's great, Jeff. You tell this forever employable story. These folks come and they, and they tell you their stories. But these, these people are really comfortable being in the spotlight. They're comfortable speaking publicly. And one of the things you said, look, I went to Australia and one of the things I had to do was I have to give speeches and I gave speeches, right? For a lot of folks, it's like their worst nightmare, right? Did you naturally take to public speaking? Was it something that you were comfortable doing from the beginning or did you get good at it after a while? It's such a great question. I get that all the time too. Like, how do you do that? I have to be honest. I loved it from the beginning and I know that's very uncommon. And I think one of the pieces of my success is I like to do something most people hate to do right? So they don't want to be up there. There's a joke, like at a funeral, people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy, right? I mean, that's how much people hate public speaking. But it was the same with writing. You know, I I haven't gone into all the nooks and crannies, but one of the things I did as a freelance writer was I ghost wrote other people's books because so many people hate writing and I really loved it. So if you can position yourself to do the things that other people don't like to do, that's going to be an advantage. So for example, you know, if I was in a group of Rotary students in Australia and there were 10 of us and they said, we need a speaker, I was the only one who raised my hand. And I very quickly realized, oh, wait a minute, that's a differentiator here. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't necessarily have to be speaking. And I'll be honest, I don't really do much one-on-one coaching. It's just not a skill of mine. I do it sometimes. But, you know, if that's what you're really good at, one-on-one coaching other people, then triple down on that. If you're really, really good at writing, triple down on that. I just happen to have the advantage that mine is a very public space. But, you know, for example, I don't think I'm that great on Twitter. So if you're fantastic on Twitter, triple down on that and spend a lot of time building that. So it doesn't have to be speaking, but I do think you have to find an area where you naturally gravitate. You know, as I was hearing you reflect back on my story of pivoting. I think it would be harder if I didn't love this stuff. Like with the pandemic, as difficult and challenging and tragic as it's been, I am utterly fascinated by what's happening in the workplace. So I want to learn about it and teach it. You know, I would suspect the same, you know, for you with technology. I'm not sort of like, I didn't find a lane and say, well, this seems like an opportunity. I'm going to learn a lot about it. 
to me, you have to have some natural affinity for the topic in order to pivot and recalculate because otherwise it's going to feel like a slog. So to me, the speaking and the learning about careers is something that I genuinely like to do. There are other parts of the business I don't love, and I'm happy to talk about those. But I think in some ways, I'm lucky that I like the speaking part, but you could be equally lucky with something else that helps you market and position yourself as an expert. It doesn't have to be speaking. Yeah. Just echoing the theme here, when we did the Forever Employable Story with Tara Schuster, this was exactly her thing too. She did the thing that nobody else wanted to do. In her case, she was working at Comedy Central on The Daily Show, and she would clean the coffee machine. The coffee machine. I love her story. Right. Yeah, I've heard it. And yeah. Nobody wanted to clean the coffee machine, but you know, John Stewart... Liked his coffee. Liked his coffee. And so you clean the coffee machine, you become more valuable and draw attention to yourself, which is amazing. It's interesting you said double down on on the things that you love. And for every employee, we'll talk about planting a flag and plant a flag. And people say, well, okay, well, what planting the flag to kind of decide kind of what domain expertise I'm going to be associated with? What am I going to be known for? What's my thing? And then you said, do the things that you love, which is great. There's there's an exercise, in fact, that I promote called Ikigai. It's a Japanese concept of... Mm -hmm your reason for being, and it's four questions, right? And the first question is, what do you love? The second question is, what are you good at? Because they're not always the same thing. What does the world need and what can you get paid for? But starting with what you love is a great place to really think about how to build a platform for yourself, how to build a name for yourself. So this is really interesting to me. So public speaking, you take to it naturally. Other folks don't want to do it, so you fill in the void. Fantastic. And then you said, look, I'm going to write a book. There are people out there who I suppose I've in their entire lives dreamed about writing a book. Why did you decide to write a book? It's a good question. I loved your story in your book about your first proposal didn't sell. You know, I wrote multiple proposals that didn't sell. And I did it not just for my first book, but for my second book and my third book. I don't want to make it sound like I just sat down and the muse showed up and (laughs) I wrote a book. And that idea, I want to go back to that doing what you love. I absolutely did not know this was it. So I get so many people say, I love that idea, but I don't know what I love. I tried a lot of stuff. I thought I was going to be a resume writer. I thought I would like the career coaching. I haven't gone back to the the fact that I got a master's in women's studies and that's what I did my thesis on. I thought I was going to be an expert in the women's space. I found that that was limiting for me and that wasn't where I wanted to be. I didn't feel a need to just stay in the women's space. And for some people, that's their passion. I didn't no, this was going to be it. I tried a lot of different stuff. And I think it was Gary Vaynerchuk who said, if you don't know what your passion is, just try stuff. And I so subscribe to that because this took many, 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 many years to kind of hone in on this multi-generational work stuff. But I tried other things. And so with the book, again, it kind of goes back to what did you like to do? I think the first thing I said was my dad was an English teacher. I liked reading and writing. I really enjoy books. I love books. I never dreamed of being a rock star like you. I dreamed of writing books. So that was a little bit inborn. I think I have an essay I wrote when I was eight years old, you know, that I wanted to be an author. So I think that was natural. I will say one of the things I learned through my freelancing was a lot of people don't like to write long form. Mm. And I happen to like that. So to me, it's easier to write 10,000 words than write a tweet. That just, again, happens to be something that I enjoy that a lot of people don't. And I realized there was a market for that. So the book, I think, was, you know, kind of like people dreaming of being a rock star or a celebrity or what have you. That was definitely in there. And it's something I still enjoy doing today. I mean, I'd like to write books forever. It's some people do it and they're done. To me, that's just something I'm very, I just enjoy doing. Despite the connections that you had and your passion for this, and clearly this was, you know, something that you were going to do regardless. It took five years to get your first book deal. And by the way, 
even with that connection, I still had multiple proposals rejected. So I don't want to make it sound like this was an easy path at all. Right. And I do want to call that out, right? Because one of the things is this lifestyle, I guess you could call it, or this approach to kind of managing your employability and, and kind of opportunities that you generate, this takes time, it takes time, like you said, to find the place where your ideas truly resonate and then to build credibility within that space. And then to really start to achieve things like getting a book deal and that type of thing, it takes time. It takes five years is, that's how long it took me, frankly, to publish my first book from from kind of the day that I decided to do this. And that's absolutely normal, I would think, for a lot of folks. I think it's normal. And I will say I started in 2002. It's a whole lot more normal now. I mean, I felt like a freak back then. All my friends had full-time jobs. There was no WeWork. There were no like Y Combinators. And it was just not a thing or it was just starting to be a thing because the internet makes it so much easier to do all this. People didn't understand. I remember at my 15th college reunion, a friend came up and said, now I kind of get what you did because everybody thought you were crazy. It is a lot easier now. And there's so much more support and there's so many more resources and apps and so on. It was very, very hard at the time to kind of go it alone. But one of the things I've really learned from the nine months or so of the pandemic, when this hit and the rug was pulled out from so many people, I was scared and I lost a lot of business, but I felt grateful to be my own boss and have my own thing because I knew I could hustle. And I wasn't sort of at the mercy of an employer to decide whether I was going to keep my job or not. And it was not easy. It was incredibly hard. But I knew I would hustle. And I think that anyone who wants to do this, and I think you say this really well in the book, it's not easy. It doesn't just come to you. But if you're willing to put in the work and hustle, there are endless opportunities. And I think in some ways, you're, quote, safer than if you're just looking for a job. And I know that's probably an unpopular kind of controversial thing to say, but I think that's the world we live in now. And I think we just learned a really hard lesson in that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I know, having done this for a while, that you know, this business is cyclical, right? There's months of feast and months of famine. Generally speaking, in a normal year, you know, the November, December timeframe is very, very quiet. And this is that part of the year where I always feel like no one's ever going to hire me again. This, this is it. Like the gigs have dried up. Nothing's ever going to come in. I have to figure this out. And when that strikes, like the panic really starts to amp up. I'm like, okay, this is when, and the panic drives the hustle, right? And so you start to kind of just really generate more content, more outreach, more whatever it is, right? The thing that's interesting to me too, and I want to point out is that you tried a bunch of different stuff. And then you kind of landed eventually, well, initially in this millennial thing, now this multi-generational thing. One of the things that's really interesting, same generation, roughly, you know, roughly the same. When you study generations, you have to admit your age because everybody asks. So okay. <laughs> I'm not very so, comfortable saying it. We are the same age. I don't know that I'd feel comfortable writing about millennials. How did you build relevance and credibility and frankly, the confidence to come out as I'm an expert on millennials in this particular case? Yeah, that word expert is so fraught. A lot of people are very uncomfortable with it. To be honest, I use it often for SEO because people will Google, you know, an expert on a topic and that's what they want to see. I don't often use it as much to describe myself. So where it really comes from is I was an RA in college my senior year. I was a, a dorm resident advisor. We call them freshman counselors. And I absolutely loved that big sister approach. And so when I started writing, getting from college to career, my approach was a big sister. I do have a younger sister, Laura, 
and a younger brother, Rob, sort of telling them, just as I had told my freshmen when I was a senior, you know, here's what I've learned. So I didn't see it as generational as much as let me help. I guess it is generational, but let me help the next group coming along. To approach it from millennials feels a little bit more of like what a marketer would do. To me, it was always just the next cohort coming up, Mm. right? How do I help them learn the lessons that I learned? So I always took that RA approach. I've never done like marketing to millennial stuff. It's always been in the workplace context. And so to me, what I like to think about as my perspective is I'm always going to tell you what I wish I had known when I was in your shoes. I'm not going to say I know exactly what you're going through, but I have been there. And now with Gen Z and, and so forth, I think I sort of feel a little bit removed from it, but I know that feeling. And it's funny you mentioned my dad. He's a high school teacher. I think he still really relates to high school and, and just kind of gets that world. Just as someone can be a pediatrician and understand babies, right? When they're a doctor, I just really have an affinity for that time of life of figuring yourself out in your 20s. And so it was so foundational for my life going through that. I just relate to it. You know, whether I'm going to be in my walker in my 90s going to campus saying, you know, I I get it, I'm sure is to be determined. But it's, I hate to say like, oh, I, I sort of like read the market and became an expert on millennials. I had a deep, true affinity for that time of life. And that drove my interest in learning more about it and helping them. So, you know, it's not just passion and, and love for it and seeing an opening in the market. It's also, I very much relate to that situation and deeply want to help people in that situation. I didn't just identify a market and go for it. Yeah. That's interesting. And again, it kind of speaks to that ikigai concept, right? This, yeah, this yeah. something that you truly believe in and the world needs it clearly kind of on a continuous basis. We're not going to run out of 20-year-olds, right? It's, uh, right. It's, <laughs> we're going to have them. Well, I love this, the visual for a second ago that you kind of gave me. You're like, adults can be pediatricians. And I was like, it would be cool if there was like a baby pediatrician, right? Like, cool. Like, yeah, I'm all for it. Probably. Doogie Howser, right? I feel like the babies would be a lot calmer <laughs> if it was one of them. We hinted at this at the beginning of the conversation. I want to come back to it because I think it's really powerful. I think it's something that most folks don't do. I think that culturally, as Americans, we probably do it more so than other cultures. I have a ton of friends in Europe, a ton of friends in the UK. And it's this idea that we just ask for what we want. Like, yeah, I'd, like to, I'd like to interview you for a forever employable story. And you never know what people are going to say. How has that worked out for you? How did you figure it out? There's a quote from you that I found. You said, I remember being in that position and thinking, I'm going to annoy them, right? I, certainly, I feel that too. And I cold call people I'm like, hey, do you want to do something with me? But people aren't getting these requests as much as you think they are, right? That's, yeah. that's a quote from you. Talk to me a little bit about that as a strategy for sort of building yourself up and getting, getting the kind of the, whatever it is, like the, the connections, the conversations, the business, the clients, whatever it is that you're looking for. Look, the self-promotion piece of this is hard. And I think that's where a lot of people fall down because they're too afraid of it. And I have fallen into that too. So it takes a lot of hustle. It takes a lot of self-promotion and a lot of confidence. And a lot of people aren't comfortable with that. And I deeply understand that. Um, I had a couple of formative experiences. One was the positivity of those Rotarians early on, that they really wanted me to succeed. And I remember, you know, somebody said, when you're up there speaking, we want you to be good because there's nothing more painful than watching a bad speaker. So just so you know, we're cheering for you. We're rooting for you. So I think that was a helpful experience. I also, and again, it's like these little moments in life. I really admired Kate White, who was the editor of Cosmopolitan Magazine for many, many years. And when I graduated college, I wrote her a letter and asked for her advice, a letter, letter. And she wrote back. 
And, you know, years later, we've connected and she's been a mentor. And she said, you know, you think I'm getting dozens of those. I wasn't, you know, like you think everybody's doing it and they're not. And it happens to me as a speaker, I'll go to campus and all these kids will come up and say, can I be in touch with you? Can you look at my resume? Can you review my LinkedIn profile? And I say, sure, sure, sure. And one will reach out. So, you know, those are the odds. In uh, the Rotary Scholarship that changed my life, it was state by state. There were two scholarships per state. I was from Connecticut. 11 people applied and two of us got it. Those are pretty good odds. You know, so when you look at the numbers, not always, but when you look at some of the numbers, it's really much more possible than you think. And One of the things that I always think about, Steve Dalton, who wrote the book, The Two-Hour Job Search, he's terrific. He's at the Duke Fuqua School of Business. He says, you can ask a dozen people. And if 11 say no, the one who says yes is going to be infinitely more helpful than the other 11 combined. Because when people do agree to help you, they are usually so delighted to do so that it makes all the no's not matter. And so I always try to keep that in mind, that you're just going to have to put out a lot of requests. It's not easy. But when you get the yes, it's so extraordinary and so helpful. It makes the no's not matter. Yeah. And again, the worst thing that could happen is they say no, right? Yeah. You send an email, you got to no. know. Especially now with LinkedIn and social media. I mean, I had to write a letter and find a stamp and mail it, or you had to pick up right. the phone, which was terrifying. That's Sending terrifying. an email. Yeah. You know, what do you have to lose? That is terrifying. I still think picking up the phone and cold calling oh, yeah, is terrifying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for taking the time and telling us your story. I think there's a lot to learn here, a lot of tips for helping folks kind of figure out how to start to plant this flag, build their platforms, hopefully work towards becoming forever employable. So thanks so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you for the message and just do it, everybody. You'll never look back. Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks again for joining me for this episode of Forever Employable Stories. If you enjoyed the show and learned something new, tell a friend. The best way you can help us grow is to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and send this episode to someone you think can benefit from it. As always, feel free to reach out and connect on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Do you know someone who has a great forever employable story? Someone who has built a platform and an audience using their unique skills and experience? If so, I want to talk to them. Send me a note at jeff at and let me know.